Part 63 of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume 1, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 63. Alexander Campbell, Esquire. Executed for a murder committed in a duel. This is a case arising out of an absurd deference being paid to the laws of honour. Alexander Campbell was tried at the Armagh Assizes in Ireland, August 13, 1808, for the willful murder of Alexander Boyd, captain in the 21st Regiment, by shooting him with a pistol bullet on the 23rd day of June, 1807. The evidence was that the prisoner was Major, and the deceased captain of the 21st Regiment of Foot, and that on the 22nd of June, after the mess dinner, a dispute arose between them, which was terminated by the prisoner inquiring, "'Do you say I am wrong?' and the deceased answering, "'Yes, I do.' Major Campbell then retired, and went and took tea with his family, and he afterwards sent a message to Captain Boyd upon the provocation given, in consequence of which they met. Being unattended by friends, the immediate circumstances which attended the duel were not proved in evidence, but it appears that Captain Boyd, being wounded, Lieutenant Macpherson, Surgeon Price, and others were called to his assistance, in whose presence he said to the prisoner, "'You have hurried me. I wanted you to wait and have friends. Campbell, you are a bad man.' He afterwards died, and upon his body being examined, it was found that he had received a pistol-shot, and that the bullet had penetrated the extremity of the four false ribs, and lodged in the cavity of the belly, which was the cause of his death.' these facts having been proved the learned judge summed up and the prisoner was found guilty of the capital offence but recommended to mercy by the jury on the score of good character alone several persons of distinction in the army having attended and declared that he was generally of a humane peaceable disposition sentence of death was however immediately passed on the unfortunate gentleman and he was ordered for execution on the monday but, in consequence of the recommendation of the jury, he was respited until the Wednesday night. In the meantime, every effort was made by the friends of the unfortunate man to procure the royal mercy. Mrs. Campbell, his lady, departed immediately for England to solicit in person the royal clemency, and the grand jury of the county, and the jury who had found him guilty, presented petitions to the Lord Lieutenant of Dublin, Mrs. Campbell, after the most incredible fatigue and exertion, reached England, and procured her petition to be delivered into the hands of His Majesty. The respite, however, expired on the 23rd of August, and an order was sent from Dublin Castle to Omar for the execution to take place on the 24th. The prisoner's deportment during the whole of the melancholy interval between his condemnation and the day of his execution was manly but penitent such as became a Christian towards his approaching dissolution. When he was informed that all efforts to procure a pardon had failed, he was only anxious for the immediate execution of the sentence. He had repeatedly implored that he might be shot, but as this was not suitable to the forms of the common law, his entreaties were, of course, without success. He was led out for execution on Wednesday, the 24th of August, 1808, just as the clock struck twelve. He was attended by Dr. Bowie, and in the whole of his deportment was manifest a pious resignation and a penitent mind. A vast crowd had collected around the scene of the catastrophe. He surveyed them a moment, then turned his head towards heaven with a look of prayer. As soon as he appeared, the whole of the attending guards, and such of the soldiery as were spectators, took off their caps, upon which the Major saluted them in turn. 
the spectacle was truly distressing and tears and shrieks burst from several parts of the crowd when the executioner approached to fix the cord major campbell again looked up to heaven there was now the most profound silence the executioner seemed paralysed whilst performing this last act of his duty and there was scarcely a dry eye out of so many thousands assembled every aspect wore a trace of grief after hanging the usual time the body was put into a hearse in waiting which left the town immediately to convey the last remains of the unfortunate gentleman to the family depository at Ayr in scotland the catastrophe is rendered still more melancholy by the unhappy circumstance that mrs campbell had indulged her hopes to the last and left london exactly at such period of time as to arrive at Ayr on the day on which her husband's corpse would necessarily have reached that place John Ryan and Matthew Kerringe, executed for arson and murder. The scene described by the witnesses in this case well depicts some of the horrors to which the inhabitants of the sister kingdom are occasionally subject. At the Lent Clonmel Assizes for the year 1808, John Ryan and Matthew Kerringe were indicted for the murder of David Bourke, in a second count with the murder of John Doherty, in a third with setting fire to the house of Lawrence Bourke, and in a fourth with maliciously firing at Lawrence Bourke with intent to kill him. After the Solicitor-General had opened the case he called Lawrence Bourke, the prosecutor, who stated that on the night of the 11th of October between the hours of ten and eleven o'clock he was informed by his servant that there were a number of men in arms advancing towards his house. In consequence of this information he went to the window and saw the prisoners, with several others, all armed, surrounding his house. They desired him to open the door, but he refused, and they then fired several shots in through the different windows. There were in the house Doherty, the deceased, a man who was servant to the witness, the witness's wife and child. They were armed, but had no ammunition, but what the guns were loaded with. The prisoners and the party, finding they could not get into the house, set it on fire, and the witness heard the prisoner Ryan say, "'Take it easy, boys. You will see what boltlings we shall have by and by.' The witness's wife and child then went to the window and called out to Ryan, who was her relation, not to burn the house, but he replied with an oath that he would, and a shot was fired at her, which, though it did not take effect, frightened her so much that she and her child fell out of the window.' They were seized by the prisoner Kiringe, but they afterwards fortunately made their escape. The house was now falling in flames about the witness's head, and he therefore opened the door and ran out. Several shots were fired at him, but he escaped them, and made his way to David Bourke's, his father's house. In his flight he fired his piece and killed one of Ryan's party. When witness arrived at his father's house, he found that he had gone to the assistance of the witness, and on returning to the place where his house stood in search of his father, he found that Ryan and his party were gone, and his father's corpse was lying about twelve yards from the smoking ruins of his dwelling. Winifred Kennedy and other witnesses were examined, who corroborated the testimony of Burke, and proved that the deceased John Doherty was burned in Burke's house. It was also proved that the whole of Ryan's party were entertained by him at dinner that day, and they all left his house armed for the purpose of attacking Burke. On the part of the prisoner Ryan, an alibi was attempted to be proved by a woman who lived with him, which entirely failed, and, after a very minute charge from the learned judge, the jury brought in a verdict of guilty against both the prisoners. 
they were executed accordingly. James Cooper executed for murder. At the summer assizes at Croydon, in the year 1809, James Cooper and Mary Cooper, his mother, aged 71 years, were indicted for the willful murder of Joseph Hollis at Compton, in the county of Surrey, on the 4th of May preceding. The first count in the indictment alleged the murder to have been committed by fracturing the skull of the deceased, and the second count stated the cause of death to have been a wound in the throat. This case was of a rather singular nature, and depended on circumstances which were proved by a number of different witnesses, and the investigation lasted nearly the whole day. The deceased was a man possessing more property than is usual with persons in his class of life. He lived in a small cottage adjoining that occupied by the prisoners, and which, with the prisoners, had been formerly but one house. It had lately been divided into two tenements, the one being occupied by the deceased and the other by the two prisoners. There was no door of communication between the two tenements, but it was proved that whatever passed in one could be distinctly heard in the other, and, as one of the witnesses stated, the clock could be heard to tick. The deceased Hollis was an old man of nearly seventy, but was hale and hearty. He was of very penurious habits, and had saved money, which he was fond of displaying. One of the witnesses described him as always carrying three canvas bags, in one of which he kept notes, in another gold and silver, and in a third copper money, and if he wanted to pay only a sixpence, he would tip all the gold and silver into his hand, and the witness added that he had seen him with one hundred pounds in his possession. The whole cottage in which he lived was his property, and the prisoner, Cooper, was his tenant, for the part which he occupied. Nobody lived in Cooper's part but himself and his mother, and Hollis, the deceased, lived alone. A woman of the name of Wisdom, going to him daily to complete his little household arrangements. On Wednesday, the 3rd of May, the day preceding Guildford Fair, he had desired a person of the name of Goddard to go with him to the fair, as he wanted to buy some sheep. Goddard told him he could not go with him, but advised him to be early. On this he declared his intention of breakfasting, and setting off the next morning by four o'clock, and, having stated this to Mary Wisdom, he told her that she need not come to him on the next day. She therefore did not, on the Thursday, make her daily visit, but on the Friday, about ten, she sent her daughter, a girl, about thirteen years of age. The child found the door unfastened, and on opening it she saw Hollis lying dead on the floor, with a great deal of blood about him. She ran out and saw Moore, the constable, crossing the common, and he immediately returned with her. A surgeon was sent for, and several people soon came. The body was lying on the floor, with the legs crossed, and the head lying on the arm, evidently composed to that attitude by the murderer after the deed. A cup of coffee, half drunk, was on the table. A piece of toast before the fire, another piece, partly eaten, lay on the hearth. The butter basin was broken, and the pat of butter was on the floor near the feet of the deceased. The chair in which he had been sitting was overturned, and his hat was lying near, so that it appeared that he had been attacked while he was sitting at his breakfast. The body was most shockingly mangled. The skull was fractured in two places, the jaw broken, the finger broken, the arms bruised, and the throat cut so as to almost sever the head from the body. Under the body was found a clasp-knife, almost covered with blood, and a poker in a similar condition. 
From these circumstances it appeared that some struggle must have taken place, which the prisoners must have heard in their cottage, if the murder had been committed by any stranger. The prisoners were therefore apprehended on the Friday evening, and their part of the cottage searched, but no evidence of their guilt was found. The trunk of the deceased had been rummaged, and as only two shillings were found on his person, it was presumed that the murderer had carried off his money. The magistrates on examination finding nothing but suspicion against the prisoners, discharged them, but on subsequent inquiries they were again apprehended, and the following circumstances were given in evidence. The night before the murder the deceased and the prisoner, James Cooper, had been quarrelling, upon which the deceased declared, as Cooper had not paid his rent, he would have him out of the cottage, and he actually applied to a person to distrain upon him. In this quarrel Cooper was heard to vow vengeance against the old man, swearing that he would be upside with him before a fortnight was over. Mrs. Cooper exclaimed, God forbid! But presently she said that it would not much matter, for that nobody liked the old man. Since the former examination of the prisoners, a more minute survey of their cottage had been taken, and concealed in the roof were found various articles of apparel belonging to the male prisoner, which were smeared with blood. Upon subsequent inquiry, the knife and poker found in old Hollis's house were also discovered to have belonged to the Coopers, and little doubt remained, therefore, of their being parties to the murder. The prisoners were eventually committed to take their trials, and while in custody, Mrs. Cooper confessed that she knew of the murder, after its commission by her son, but she denied that she was in any way party to the foul deed. She stated that her son had gone out in the evening in question, carrying the knife and poker with him, and that soon afterwards she heard a noise in old Hollis's house, followed by cries for help, and presently a heavy fall against the wainscot, but beyond this she knew nothing. Upon this evidence the male prisoner was found guilty, but his mother was acquitted. The unhappy young man immediately received sentence of death, and was executed on the following Monday, confessing the justice of his sentence and punishment. Joseph Brown, executed for murder. This case affords a striking instance of the wonderful effects of the workings of the conscience of a guilty man. Joseph Brown was indicted at the York Assizes in the month of March 1809 for the willful murder of Elizabeth Fletcher at Hensel, near Ferry Bridge, in the month of October in the year 1804. The offence was alleged to have been committed by the administration of poison to the deceased woman by the prisoner, and a companion named Hazelgrove, both of whom, at the time of the occurrence, lodged in her house. The evidence with regard to the transaction was that, on the Sunday, the 21st of October, 1804, the prisoner Hazelgrove, Elizabeth Fletcher, the deceased, and her sister Sarah, were all sitting together at supper between eight and nine o'clock at night, and that Hazelgrove went to fetch some ale. On his return, Brown put some sugar into it, and gave it to the deceased, and she and her sister drank the whole of it, while Brown and Hazelgrove refused to partake of it, but drank some out of another mug. In the course of the night the prisoner and his companion absconded, and nothing more was heard of them, until the apprehension of the prisoner in the Isle of Wight, on the 3rd of August, 1808, and in the morning Mrs. Fletcher was found to be dead, and her sister suffering severely from the effects of laudanum. It was proved that Mrs. Fletcher was known to be in the possession of a considerable sum of money, and that the prisoner had expressed a wish that he had it. 
and that on the Saturday, the 20th of October, he had purchased six pennyworth of laudanum of Mr. Perkins, a surgeon at Snaith, to whom he represented that it was for the use of his father, who was unable to get any sleep. The death of the deceased, it could not be doubted, had been produced by laudanum. The additional evidence by which it was proposed to bring home the offence to the prisoner was a confession, which he had made at the Isle of Wight in the month of August preceding his trial, when he surrendered himself into custody, as he said at the time, on account of the anguish produced in his mind, on his reflecting upon the dreadful crime of which he had been guilty. In his confession he stated that he had been acquainted with Joseph Hazelgrove upwards of six years, that in the month of October 1804 he and Joseph Hazelgrove lodged with Mrs. Fletcher of Hensel near Ferrybridge, and there formed the design of poisoning her, in order to possess themselves of some property they supposed her to possess, that for this purpose he procured sixpennyworth of laudanum of a Mr. Perkins of Snaith, which he gave to Hazelgrove, who mixed it with some beer, along with some sugar, and gave it to Elizabeth Fletcher and her sister. The former died in consequence of it, and early the following morning they broke open her box, and took out one guinea and a half, with which they absconded. The prisoner, it appeared, had been since subjected to prosecution on account of some offence of which he had been guilty, but had been permitted to enter a foot regiment, in which he was still a soldier at the time of his trial. On his being called on for his defence, he declared, with the most consummate impudence, that his confession was untrue, and that his only object in making that statement was, by putting himself upon his trial, to clear up the suspicions which were entertained against him. He then went on to say that his acquaintance with Hazelgrove had subsisted from an earlier period than he had represented, down to the time of his trial, and that they had always lived upon terms of the closest intimacy that in the early part of their friendship a lady of high rank and fortune had become enamoured of his friend, and that many interesting meetings had taken place between them. He was generally employed as the go-between, and the secrecy which they were compelled to observe upon this subject gave an air of mystery to their conduct, which caused them to be spoken of with suspicion, and at length so far had the malignity of their enemies been excited against them that they were accused of every offence which happened to be committed within a circuit of several miles. He concluded by repeating his declaration as to the object which he had in view in surrendering himself into custody, suggesting that the death of Mrs. Fletcher might have been occasioned by a fit, and protesting his entire innocence of the crime imputed to him. He declined calling any witnesses to substantiate the allegations which he made, however, and a verdict of guilty was returned. The learned judge then proceeded to pass sentence of death upon the prisoner, whom he addressed in the following terms. Joseph Brown, I am called upon in the painful exercise of my duty to pass sentence upon a person found guilty of one of the greatest offences against society, the crime of deliberate murder. You stand an awful and striking example of the justice of providence, of that punishment which, sooner or later, never fails to overtake the guilty you have been compelled by the agonies of remorse and the upbraidings and tortures of a guilty mind to furnish that evidence against yourself which was wanting to establish the proof of your guilt and to supply that link in the chain of evidence which appeared to be imperfect i trust that every one who hears of your fate will bear in mind that a time will arrive probably in this world most certainly in another when guilt will meet with its due punishment in your unhappy case that period is already come when you must receive the reward of your crimes. 
impelled by the hope of possessing the treasure which you supposed your unfortunate victim had saved from her hard earnings, you deliberately formed the design of destroying her. For this purpose you purchased a deadly drug, which you procured to be mingled in the cup which you offered to her under the guise of friendship. When the potion had taken effect you plundered her of her property, though it was much less than your guilty cupidity had suggested. Your crime appeared likely to be perpetrated, as to this world, with impunity. More than four years had elapsed since its perpetration, and the remembrance of it began to fade from the recollection of every one but the guilty author of the deed, and it seemed probable that nothing more would have been heard of it, if the consciousness of your crime, more poignant and destructive than the poison bowl, had not compelled you to disclose the horrid secret. Chequered as your life has been with crimes, I cannot indulge the hope that anything that I can say will have any lasting effect upon you, but I conjure you to spend the few remaining hours you have to live in earnest prayer and supplication to heaven for mercy, and may your unhappy fate convince others that, though their crimes may be committed in the darkness of the night, they will hereafter be proclaimed at noon to-day. The sentence was then passed in the usual terms, and the prisoner was executed on the 20th of March, 1809. We have no record of the manner in which he met his death. End of part 63